Welcome back to season two of the Run Culture Podcast. My name is Dane Verway. I'm an experienced running physiotherapist, coach, and marathoner. This season will involve open discussions with my running colleagues about the key principles behind injury-free running and optimal performance. It'll be backed by personal experience, science, and history. I can only hope some of these chats inspire curiosity and expand or confirm perspectives and beliefs amongst the running community. Anyway, I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to another episode of the Run Culture Podcast. Today I'm chatting to Rafe Kelly. Rafe has spent much of his life moving and promoting movement. Rafe is the owner of Evolve Move Play. He's an expert of everything movement. He's experienced so many different forms of martial arts. He has also been practicing parkour since its humble beginnings. And he has become a huge natural movement advocate. Welcome to the show, Rafe. Yeah, good to be here, Dan. Thank you. Yeah, thanks so much for agreeing to come on. Uh, I first came across your work, Rafe. Um, yeah, it would have been at the start of the year listening to um, the Just Fly um, performance podcast with Joel Smith. And uh, and then now I've been going through all your podcasts uh, at Evolve Move Play. And uh, yeah, I've really enjoyed um, your perspective on movement. Um what does it mean to move like a human? Yeah. Um, fundamental idea is, or I like to tell a story, right? A little parable, right? Imagine that you, uh, let's say you have a zoo, right? In the zoo, you've got a wolf and a jaguar. Um, and so you, the jaguar and the wolf, they're, they're unhealthy. They're not getting enough exercise, getting fat. Um, so someone hires a personal trainer, right? And this personal trainer, he, uh, you know, he's read all the literature on muscle protein synthesis. He's, you know, he's read all the literature on VO2 max, you know, on PNF stretching and all these things. And it, with that information, would he be able to get the Jaguar and the wolf healthy? The answer I don't is I think no, right? Because if you train a wolf the same way as a Jaguar, you're, you're going to miss something, right? A wolf is an animal that's built to run and run and run and run. So you put a, a wolf on a, a, a cardiorespiratory program, have him running, it's going to thrive, right? You, you ask the Jaguar to do the same thing, it's going to wear its paws out really quickly. Its body's not designed to sustain these kind of long-distance efforts. Flip side, you ask the wolf to carry super heavy loads, uh, it's going to break down. But a Jaguar can carry an animal that weighs twice its own weight up through a tree, right? So just in the same sense that you can imagine that to train it, uh, an animal optimally, you have to understand its biology, its niche, the ecology it operates within, types of tasks that its body evolved for um, to train it optimally. The same thing is true of a human being. So we have a whole science of sports physiology, which is looking at human beings in environments that we didn't evolve for. And 
doesn't understand the evolutionary context of the human animal and is looking at the level of the, you know, in, in vitro cell culture, right, muscle cell, um, but not understanding the, the actual function that the animal evolved for. So what I mean when I say training a human being like human is that to, to optimize our health, you have to understand what we evolved for. Um, and then that becomes a, a very interesting question. I would say fundamentally what a human be what makes a human being unique movement wise is that it's the most dexterous animal, right? You, you've often heard like human beings are fairly unimpressive animals because, you know, we can't run fast like cheetahs, we're not super powerful, we've got thin, soft skin, we don't have claws or teeth. Um, but take something like the Olympics and ask, is there any other animal that could come close to accomplishing all of the tasks that human beings do? No. Absolutely not. <laughs> so a human being has this extraordinary diversity of movement capacity, but within that diversity, there's still fundamentals, right? Human beings have the capacity to express such extraordinary diversity in our body, such extraordinary dexterity in our body, because we were arboreal animals first. And arboreal animals are more agile and more dexterous and have better depth perception, visual capacity, gripping ability, um, 3D motion than other animals. That was what pre-adapted human beings to become the type of thing that can do all of the things that we do. So is the run culture podcast, right? So yeah. most of you guys are probably familiar with the born to run thesis. Human beings are persistence hunters. We're especially adapted to run animals down using the advantage of our ability to sweat. This is um, true, but it's, it's partial. What is often not talked about in that is that you have to be in a sufficiently arid environment and a hot environment for the ability to, to dump body heat to be this big advantage, right? Yep. So a human being can run uh, a buffalo or a gazelle to death on the African savannah, um, but it can't do the same thing in the jungle. Yep. yep. Right? We can't do the same thing in the Arctic. Human beings have zero ability to keep up with wolves in the Arctic. Right? Nobody's going to go run the Iditarod next to the sled dogs and keep up. Not even close. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, in specific environments, human beings are, are good persistence hunters. I think only about 6% of, uh, of, of cultures that we've looked at in the ethnologue have a tradition of, of persistence hunting. And I don't believe it's in any cultures the predominant hunting model. What human beings do everywhere is projectile hunting. What made us the most dominant predator on earth is the ability to throw things. Okay, so a human being can throw at least twice as fast as a chimpanzee, if not faster, right? So we, we can produce far more power through throwing than the other animal. Um, we, uh, we can also throw with far greater accuracy and we can throw we can throw at where an animal will be. And the research seems to indicate that no other animal can do this. They can't project out to where the animal will be. And there's some argument, this is one of the main things that drove our cortical evolution, was this ability to project into the future. So throwing is actually the human superpower. 
but throwing is actually very evolutionarily novel. We probably, I mean, chips throw, right? So they can throw, but it's not a common behavior, really. Um, we probably have only been sort of dominantly using throwing as part of our subsistence and defense strategy for maybe 2 million years. So why, why did we have the ability to throw in the first place? It's what's called an exaptation. Evolution works with things that existed before. So you, we're speaking right now, right? Yeah. When we speak, we manipulate the flow of air through our mouth using our tongue. But our tongue's original purpose wasn't to speak. It was to detect poison, right? Yeah. And so it developed all this dexterity that then gets exapted into the ability to manipulate airflow. In the same sense, the shoulder was pre-adapted to the capacity to throw through being adapted to swinging through trees. Yeah. So for 2 million years, we've been throwing animals. But for 60 to 90 million years, we were arboreal animals. And people don't think that hunter-forgers are still arboreal, right? We, you know, we have this idea that we came down onto the plains, we became bipedal, and we're, we're running down game. But if you look at modern hunter-forger cultures, there's actually a lot of climbing behavior, especially in environments like jungles. You'll see that uh, often human beings are in the trees, a similar amount to chimps in the same environments. So uh, you can look at, uh, on my podcast, I had George Brill. And so we break down some of that. And uh, I can't remember the name of the exact paper, but, uh, but there's a really interesting paper about this. But human beings are actually very, very competent in trees. And we, uh, in, in a lot of the environments that we work in, fruit and eggs are among the most uh, nutrient-dense foods that are available to us and they're available in trees. So um, here's some things about a human being, right? Yeah. You should move in very diverse ways, right? Your body's set up. It's built for this elastic recoil that is built into throwing and striking. Um, and it was built to move in arboreal environments. So this swinging, climbing, clambering, multidimensional, all fours, um, all uh, sort of 3D motion type stuff is incredibly rich. We know that there's all this research that shows that the brain is particularly developed by the patterns of moving on all fours. There's very preliminary research that shows incredible effects from climbing as well, but it hasn't really been studied. But my hypothesis is that the brain evolved to move around in trees. And we are going to nourish the entire body best when we do something in an arboreal environment or arboreal-like environment. So the way that I look at it, we have locomotion. How do we move our body through space? We have manipulation. Human beings are the tool-using animal. We have interaction. We work with other animals and we compete and fight with other animals. A approach to moving like a human being has to incorporate all of those and should do those in species-specific ways. For me, just running on pavement is, is a very um, non-human approach to locomotion. It doesn't have sufficient diversity. doesn't take us into the type of environments that we are. and doesn't express the full capacity for coordination, agility, um, and dexterity that moving like a parkour athlete does. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, I, I could go on and on and on about this. I have, you know, 
I just released a product called the return to movement. Um, if people want to check that out okay. uh, on our website, um, all you can put in the show notes, but yep. this is kind of my, the long form version of that argument, but I don't want to just, uh, just <laughs> rant for the entirety of this podcast. So I'll let you ask some questions. No, that's, that's fantastic. Um, because yeah, I come from a physiotherapy background and, um, very insular down here. Um, and, um, uh, have just learnt like all these little exercises in the gymnasium and 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 like uh, theraband exercise and and part practice exercises where you localize certain muscles and um, just coming across your work has been really eye opening because I'm like oh that makes sense like let's actually think about like what 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 we're sort of supposed to be like as humans and how we interact with nature and and the environment and the world around us and. Uh, it definitely inspired me to get outside and, and do some exercise routines outside more. Um, I'm definitely running more on trails now um, uh, rather than, uh, yeah, just on, on pavement or, or treadmills. Um, but, yeah, w I've heard you talk about the difference between movement and exercise. Um, mm -hmm. And I think this is really good for listeners to hear um, the difference between, say, movement and exercise. Um, uh, in your words. Yeah. I mean, I would say that in, in a sense, exercise is, a, is an abstraction of movement. Like anytime that you're, um, you know, basically if you're alive, you're moving, you're breathing, you're, you're doing stuff, but every task that you engage in generally has some level of movement, whether you're washing the dishes or sweeping or whatever it is you do, typing, sitting at a computer. Now in a, Throughout human evolution until basically the post-industrial age, most of our life required us to move. Right? If you wanted food, you had to move. If you wanted shelter, you had to move. If you wanted heat, you had to move. You had to chop wood, you know, you had to carry water. Um, you had to move animals around. And that, for most of evolution, you didn't really need to move more than that necessarily. You had this necessity. Uh, so if you look at a hunter forager, an adult hunter forager, they don't exercise, right? They, they do movement a lot, right? They are walking 10 miles a day plus, they are tracking and looking for things, they are climbing trees, they are crafting, right? They're, uh, you know, hunting animals, harvesting the, the animal, processing it, um, making cordage, right? Making, so, so their whole life, there's always movement tasks that are happening. And those movement tasks are the preparation for those movement tasks. They don't, they don't have to abstract it and say, in order to be prepared to play soccer on Saturday, I need to make sure that I go do my sprints on Tuesday and my pushups on Thursday, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, they're not saying, okay, I, I feel like my glutes aren't functioning well when I'm sprinting down this gazelle, so I'm going to go do my monster walks. Right? <laughs> the lifestyle itself is the preparation for the lifestyle. To the degree that there is some preparation, it's, it's inherently intrinsically driven through play. So small children play in ways that uh, we have an inherent drive to play in ways that are relevant to our species specific adaptation. This is a point I didn't make earlier about moving like a human being, right? 
watch a, a, a kitten play and it stalks things, pounces on them and bites them and scratches right, with its hind legs. This is how cats kill their prey, right? So the cat's play, its inherent drive to behave in a specific way is producing the capacity that's relevant to its survival. We watch a puppy play. It's very similar to a kitten, but it's slightly different because they will run a lot in play. Cats won't run as much, right? It's very short effort because cats are ambush predators. But dogs will run and play tag over and over and over again because they're ambush, uh, they're pursuit predators, right? So if we watch human children, what are the forms of play that are cultural universal, right? So every culture has its own games, its own specific things that are, right? Um, you know, my daughter, who's, you know, part of our culture, she has a little toy phone and she calls people. And blah, blah, blah. Like that's, that's something that has to do with the tools that we have. But in every culture in the world, kids are going to do locomotor exploratory play. They're going to run, jump, and climb and explore how they can move in the environment they're in. And it's the same type of play that we see in what, really all animals, but it's very strong in primates because the demand for locomotor ability is so high in primates, right? Yep. If you fall out of a tree, you have a bad day. Yeah. <laughs> right? Um, so, so there's a lot of parkour in young macaques and young chimpanzees. Yeah. <laughs> and they do the same thing in young hunter forager children, right? They swing around on branches, jump, climb, swing on vines, climb rocks, flip into water, that's very predominant forms of play. Um, and that prepares the body for any kind of demands that are going to happen in the later life. Um, same thing with rough and tumble play. They wrestle a lot. You know, sometimes they may have to wrestle an animal. That's, that's an important aspect of, of what they're doing. And obviously they might have war. They might fight. Um, and they will, if there's, if there's spears, they're going to start playing with spears. If there's, you know, they're going to throw stones. They're going to build bow and arrows. If they have bow and arrows, slingshots, all of those are relevant to the survival mechanisms. Um, so the, the children will play in ways that are universal and then in ways that's specific to their culture and prepare them. Um, so okay, this is a very long answer to get back to the <laughs> There's a point at which the life that we live doesn't prepare us well for the demands that we have. Now, I think that the origin of most of what we think of as exercise actually starts with professional soldiers. Because a, hunter, a, a farmer farms every day and the farming prepares them for farming. But warriors very rarely fight every day. You can't fight every day. You die very quickly. So you're going to have, you know, basically like war is extreme boredom punctuated by periods of horrific violence. So how do you make sure that you're prepared for the tasks that are specific to war? You have to now exercise. You have to now abstract out the types of activities that are going to happen in combat and prepare your body for them. You have to abstract out the physical qualities that you need to sustain those tasks. Yeah, that's great. And I feel, and, feel like um, like uh, that really explains it well. Um, and I, I like how you, 
like um, you, you talk about play a bit and I feel like that's what's missing in a lot of people's exercise program is, okay, we've got to do this, but it's very meaningless. Like there's no uh, context or, or intention or it, it feels a bit detached from the actual uh, specific thing that they're training for um, because it, yeah, it might be monster walks, um, but they're preparing for a marathon or, uh, I don't know, like it, it just, um, like a lot, I like, um, I mean, when I watched that YouTube click of you, the tree runner running through the trees, um, and doing your parkour, um, like you, you, your perception of the environment, um, your flow through the trees and ability to time, time your foot position and, and position your body um, in the right position at certain times. Like you can't get that just from um, being inside and um, doing monster walks. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, so like, I feel like um, the idea of play is like you're learning different problem solving um, aspects, like you're failing, you're succeeding, but you're also immersing yourself um, in the environment and the, you know, potentially the social environment as well, the natural and the social environment and, um, getting all that information, um, while you move, um, compared to sort of when you're in the gym, uh, like you don't get that, that, uh, sensory input. Um, uh, so yeah, the idea of play, um, is something that one, it's more enjoyable. <laughs> um, like it's fun. Like I've started to introduce that with the kids I coach, um, just mm -hmm. playing a, a bit of basketball for the warm up instead of a, a run. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. and it's amazing. Um, yeah, how just that idea of a game and, um, competing against each other, like actually just gets this energy in the squad and then, yeah, they go, Oh, that was the best training session ever. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and, I, and they felt they, they, um, were also moving, moving well, they felt good. Um, so yeah, I think, um, rather than being so like, um, strict and go, Oh, we have to do this and this and this, um, uh, having that element of, um, uh, uh, play makes it, um, I, I think it's often like a forgotten part, um, in the Western world with training. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, the, you know, if you're a physio, so yeah. you know that the biggest problem in the physio and the physio world is compliance, right? So you're saying, okay, I want you to go home and do the ABCs with your ankle after you sprain it. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> no one does it. <laughs> nobody, nobody does it, right? Okay. Do your monster walks before you play soccer or whatever. People tend to be very bad at doing it. Uh, so we have to try to understand what motivates people to engage in exercise, right? We have to think about it as a, like an entrainment problem. Um, one of the things that human beings are actually highly motivated to do is play. Um, it's intrinsically uh, motivating. Play is also really uh, great because it inherently complexifies, right? It, it teaches, it makes you more capable of complex um, movement. And it tends to, um, it guides us towards uh, the zone of proximal development, right? So if we abstract out how much exercise we should get, it's actually, we don't necessarily have a perfect guide to 
you know, this optimal challenge zone, right? So we can make it too challenging or we can make it insufficiently challenging. Play is very sensitive to that because play is fun when it's optimally challenging. When it's too challenging, it's anxiety provoking. When it's not challenging enough, it's boring, right? But when you're doing your PT exercises, if it's boring, you're just supposed to keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> um, so there are ways in which we can try to bring play into that environment. So one of the principles we work with is always train at the highest level of complexity that allows you to target the specific adapt adaptation that you're looking for. So you have an athlete who just sprained their ankle, right? Yep. You don't want to just say, okay, let's play soccer. Yeah. <laughs> right. Cause you, you need, you know, you're looking for how do we get the, the excess fluids out of the tissue? How do we reduce the edema? How do we, Who's pain signaling? How do we get stability up, right? There's there's other things that right now are at a higher, um, they're more important. But once you get past a certain point, and it's okay, we've, we've reduced this, and now now you're working on their stability, their cutting, their capacity, their, their explosiveness. If your answer to that is, you know, five sets of 15 reps of ankle circles with a band, you're running into a problem of compliance, right? And also a problem of like not being able to attune well to that actual individual's um, zone of proximal development. So if instead you can say, hey, what's a game that we can play that's going to challenge you appropriately to move multidimensionally with that ankle? Yeah. Right? And we're going to say, okay. And now we can have some metric that says this ankle right, is is more stable, is more capable. Yeah. But then we yep. look at here's a game that allows us to make gains safely. And then over time, we can increase the complexity and demands of that game. And we're going to have athletes who, when they're done with the rehab process, are actually going to be far more prepared because it's not just the local tissue that's prepared. The entire system, psycho-emotional, physical, that needs to return to the state of capacity for play and to be improved, right? Like, so often when we're talking about injuries, it's like you're trying to get them back to where they were. But if you get them back to where they were, that's where they got injured. Yeah. <laughs> you have to get them better so they won't get injured again. Yep. Yeah, no. The likelihood of injury is, is substantially reduced. Yeah. So you want to be able to find those gaps and, and build progressively this through the play and through the constraints of the games until they're ready to return to play and return to play with greater resilience, greater antifragility, you know, greater dexterity and capacity moving forward. Yeah, I think um, like th this kind of idea of play and um, and getting a bit more sort of thinking of us as humans and and um and getting us amongst nature i think it's definitely been an aspect that um i haven't included it enough um in my um physiotherapy so far but it's definitely something that i'm gonna um like work on and and, and get better at because um uh, I, I can see it being like um a big piece that's been missing and i often question like why 
isn't this person transferring all that strength that we've been working on into their running or you know why isn't it like why isn't it ch changing them and and I, I guess um yeah just starting to realize that humans are so much more complex than that like and there's so much more to it um i often go like there's so many um COVID runners like new COVID runners um there's so many new community run groups down this way as well like running's becoming a li little bit more cool um and there's these little park runs um every saturday where it's uh, a free um five kilometer running event which has been great for the community um and it's getting everyone sort of involved in exercise um just in the, the local um uh reserve um but i often look around at all the runners and um like a lot of them are sort of sort of muscling their way around um, the course and they're enjoying it, um, but they're all, all sort of often like coming in with aches and pains. And a lot of that is just load management and, 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 and learning to sort of just gradually do the sport over time. Um, but then I feel like um, uh, when, I, when, you can, when you watch like so, sort of movers like um, Kenyans or you watch sort of like a Roger Federer play tennis or Ian Thorpe swim, there's something about those real skilled performers uh, in sport that um, uh, it's, it's hard to put a word on it, but they, um, they look so smooth and they um, flow, flow really well. Um, uh, do you feel like um, uh, your journey and getting into parkour has helped um, you sort of um, uh, help the people you're working with move better as um like it yeah. like ha yeah i mean word we use for that thing that federer has yeah. or kipchoge is we say it, they, they're natural movers right yeah oh it's just natural yeah um, it's funny because we say that in the sense of like it's just innate right or he, he's just got better genetics and i'm I, like i think genetics matter i'm 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 uh uh <laughs> I think people who say talent doesn't exist are are are, um, are just deluding themselves. But there's another way to look at it, which is that they they've developed they've developed naturally, right? Or they've developed this whole capacity. So one of the things we see is that um, if you look at the highest attainment athletes, they tend to be athletes who um, who had a broad diversity of movement. So you you're going to get a different suite of adaptations from parkour than from soccer. And if you take both and you end up running, that person is going to have a more robust total movement system than someone who just runs. So uh, Franz Bosch introduced this idea, or at least I'm familiar with it through Franz Bosch, I really like it, but talks about the idea of variability in movement as teaching us higher order movement principles. So imagine that you have say 10 primary factors, we'll just pick 10 as an arbitrary number, that tend to determine how successful you are at throwing a baseball or a cricket ball, right? Pitching, what do you call it? Bowling, bowling a cricket ball. Yeah. <laughs> Try to get this for your, your audience, right? Um, and then you have say 10 factors that are determinative of how successful you are shooting a basketball and then 10 factors that determine how well you do a backflip okay but maybe there's three factors that are actually shared across all of them 
If you only do the one task, your body won't become as aware of the primary motor factors that have the most control over success. Right? So when you expose people to a broad diversity of movement, you help them recognize the most important things. It's important here, here, and here. It's very important, and my nervous system will now attend to it primarily, right? And then it will stabilize my performance and capacity for movement across many things. So I think part of what you're seeing in those athletes who have this beautiful quality of movement is that they've actually learned how to recognize the most important high-order movement control principles through exposure to many different movement stimulus. And to go back to nature for a second, you mentioned, you know, you're taking people out into nature. Nature is variable and it's variable in a very broad way. And so just moving in nature itself is exposure to a lot of variability in motor performance. So in the physio world, they talk a lot about proprioceptively enriched environments. But the funny thing is that compared to nature, most PT offices are <laughs> proprioceptively impoverished. Yeah. <laughs> right? We need to actually well, it's think all, of those yeah, it's all stepping stones yeah. that we use for people who are really broken so that we can get them back to nature. Right? But we want to spend more of our time there. Right? Run down a rocky creek. So you have a therapy ball behind you. Right. Yeah. Um, you know, so you have some sort of stability tools. Okay. So you might use a BOSU ball, you might use a little slack line, you know, whatever. Okay. If you run down a rocky creek, there are rocks that wobble, right? Yeah. <laughs> but you don't know. Maybe some of them wobble, maybe some of them don't. If you get good at it, your nervous system becomes more adaptable. If you play in trees and you're walking on tree branches, they sway. Right. So they, they bend and they pitch side to side and they sway, right? Yeah. And your body has to learn to control all those factors. So like we said, if you want to look at the best, most agile animals, it's monkeys, it's chimpanzees, it's gibbons, that's where human beings come from. And we've sacrificed some of that agility in the trees because our bodies are bigger and we can throw and we're so much more enduring on our feet. Um, but we have this incredible diversity of movement that's available to us and it comes from that heritage in the trees. So when we go back to nature, we are feeding that system that will help us become a natural mover. Yeah, no, that's, that's great. Uh, it actually um, ring, rings really true to me. Like I treated a... Um, really high level hurdler um, this year she hurt her knee like um, she went over the hurdle and just rolled her ankle but then her knee rolled in and yeah. she ruptured her lateral ligament and needed surgery she's only um, young and yeah. uh, anyway worked with her through her rehab process and she's going really well and she's at about the seven month mark now and um, but we soon discovered like um, uh, her her bout her performance measures like when she's moving in a straight line are amazing and she can uh looks like she's going really well but then as soon as we did stuff that was side to side um because she specialized young um, in hurdling and and athletics and didn't do any sort of team sports or 
or uh, multi-directional sports, you could see it. Like, and one, she's young and she's growing and developing and she's like a baby giraffe a little bit, but it, it's um, amazing how, um, yeah, just that through, she hasn't had much exposure to um, kicking a soccer ball across her body or, or a, a hacky sack or um, uh, hopping laterally or, you know, um, and everything's just straight lines and you could re really see it in a movement in her ankle and a hip and it just la lacked that, um, that um, sensitivity of, um, and, and, and quick reactivity um, to the, those perturbations. Whereas ev when everything was like in a trained sort of straight lying state, like she looks like she's ready to run, but um, yeah, if you break it down and start doing those lateral components, you can see that she's um, a little bit fragile and, um, and probably like still predisposed to maybe, yeah, p potentially doing something again. So um, we've yeah. been really working on that. Yeah. She's been highly specialized in sagittal plane, like forward movement. Obviously there's transverse and frontal plane involved in sprinting, but you know, she's, she's getting exposed to a very specific, like a lot of those variable variabilities are, variables are taken out, right? Like the ground is as soft, is as flat as possible, right? Cause so you can run as fast as possible. I mean, even, like I, I'm guessing she only hurdles with one leg forward. Yeah, yeah. So how you know how's her, you know, hamstring extensibility on her lead leg versus her hamstring extensibility on her forward leg? How's that? It's different. Hip rotation on the forward <laughs> leg versus the back leg. Yeah. Right? yeah. Think about how much asymmetry you're driving there just by not exposing her to the other side. Right? Yeah. And then, um, okay, so. So she, she's very good sagittally, right? But what happens when you clip a hurdle? Yeah. Well, right? like you... Very easy for that hurdle to pitch you into now having to control your body in the transverse plane. Yep. Right? But if you, if the only time that you ever experience that transverse plane is when you have a catastrophic failure hurdling, <laughs> how prepared is the body to handle it? Right? But if she's playing basketball, if she's playing soccer, she's playing rugby, right? Aussie rules. Um, <laughs> she, you know, all of a sudden it's like, that's a more robust system that's going to handle a collision with an obstacle and being pitched into a different plane of motion much more. Right? Yeah. Is that, and when you talk about your callus example, is that what, um, you're alluding to a little bit in a way um, with the calloused hands and yeah, um, yeah. I, I, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that's connected. I was, yeah, yeah. I was thinking more from a motor control perspective, but also mm. from a, a local tissue perspective. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I don't know if this is a video or not. But people can take a look at my hand, possibly. Yeah, and there's there's calluses. <laughs> and so, if you feel my hand, what you'll feel is that the bottom of my hand to the tips of my finger are calloused. So I swing on bars and do muscle ups and, you know, work some with barbells. Um, but compared to somebody who only does that, my callus is much more developed across the entirety of my hand. And I have less specific hypertrophy right underneath my, my, my fingers. So the callus is the adaptation of skin to being loaded. You have certain types of skin that can callus and when it's loaded, it calluses. Now, people think that the callus itself exposes you to the danger of ripping, but it's actually the disproportionate strength between the callus skin and the skin near it. So you can get 
uh, excessive hypertrophy of the callus. And now you have a, a bigger lever, right? You have a stronger lever system that's applying to that skin. But the other aspect is that actually when you train only with a barbell or only on a bar or only on rings, you're, there's actually a lot of the skin of your hand that's not getting loaded or only getting very minimal loading. And so that skin is essentially detrained. It's like sedentary skin. And so that skin is weak. And so when the, the big, powerful callus skin pulls on that weak skin excessively, you have a rip. Now, my belief is that this is what's happening in the entire body due to the highly specialized isolated way that we train. So imagine an athlete, um, field sport athlete, a rugby, Aussie rules um, type of athlete, and they're, they're going to play their sport. And in their sport, there's a shit ton of multi, um, multi-planar movement, right? Stop, start, deceleration, change of direction. Think about the stressors that all the ligaments and tendons and muscles around the knee are experiencing. Yep. So get done with the season. You say, okay, this athlete needs to get strong. We want this athlete to be strong and be able to hit the scrum, knock people back. So we're going to have them squat. And we want them to be safe. So we want them to squat with good technique, which means that their knees are going to perfectly track their toes, right? Not going to go too far into the knee shifting over the toe, right? You know, the back's going to be neutral the whole time. Now, what we're going to do is we're going to create a ton of strength in specific tissues. But now all that, all the adaptations that are relevant to putting your foot into the ground and twisting around the knee are actually, they're decaying, right? Those ligaments, the entire time that they're not playing their sport or not doing some activity that's sufficiently comparable to it, they're actually getting atrophy of the ligaments in the knee atrophy of attendance. So now you take that athlete and you've made them more powerful, right? Let's say their squat went from, you know, 100 kilos to 150 kilos, right? Their broad jump went up to, or their, their standing jump went up 10 inches. I don't know what that is in centimeters. Um, right? So way more powerful. This is maybe a high school athlete to get this much more powerful this quickly. But, um, Okay, it's like, you, great, you've done your job as their strength and conditioning um, guy. And they go on the field, and they're basically a much more powerful muscular engine. It's now being applied to tissues that are actually weaker. Yep. Uh -huh. That have decayed. Now, obviously, when you squat, there is, there is adaptation to the ligaments. But is it... Is it sufficient? Is it in balance to the development of the quads? Is it relative to relevant to the type of exposure they're going to get on the field? Um, is it torquing it right at the level of the individual cell? You can you can compress a cell, you can stretch a cell out, and you can shear a cell. So you're getting a specific type of force exposure in a specific um, line of force. If you don't have good motor control of that, if you don't have good tissue resilience built up over the types of, uh, of tissue exposure that you experience in the sport, you've actually potentially made that athlete more injury prone. And that's actually what we see, right? What we see is that, um, I don't know how true this is in the sports that are, that are common in Australia. I think it's less true in Australia. 
the, the, the players associations in, in a lot of the, uh, particularly in the NFL, have really limited off-season practices. So athletes are not performing a lot of sports-specific um, type of physical preparation. They're doing a lot of strength conditioning, which is very isolated and separated from the way that they're performing. And so we have athletes now who are, you know, the most explosive athletes in the history of the world, probably, right? <laughs> Guys with 40-inch verticals, 10-foot broad jumps, 11-foot broad jumps, you know, squatting 600 pounds. And the ACL rates are breaking records every year. Yep. <laughs> yeah, it's not. So, um, so that's, that's, that's what I'm talking about with this, this analogy of it. And so my belief is that, again, going back to the idea of training at the highest level of complexity that you can sustain, you can build the adaptation. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I can hear. Microphone. Good. Okay, yeah. my microphone's back. You can't play full, full contact tackle football every day. Yeah. Your body can't sustain it. It's useful to to go seek some other adaptations, but we have to be much more conscious of how we're building it, and can we? Can we get a little bit more of that on the field type movement, or can we get a little bit more of something that's going to really build overall resilience, as well as those really nice, easy to pursue, obvious metrics, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's like really hard to measure how much stability we've put into a knee, right? But yeah. but their benchmarks, that's easy to measure. Yeah. <laughs> The vertical that's easy to measure um but not everything that measures <laughs> that can be measured matters right not everything that matters can, is easily measured um so that's why like if we can make if i can make an athlete stronger by having them climb a tree i like that better than if i can make them stronger by just having them do pull-ups because i know that they're getting all these secondary adaptations just like the hand Right. Yep. So if we can yep. diversify and make that movement look more natural and look more like the way that a human evolved to move, I think we're going to create more resilient, more anti-fragile athletes. Yeah, I I agree, Rafe. And so amazing listening to you talk about that because that makes, yeah, I, I I'm really a convert. <laughs> um, and the other the other thing that I just wanted to touch on before I let you go because you've been incredibly generous with your time, um, was listening to you just talk about um rhythm and timing because i feel like um uh well, in my experience there's definitely a bias um in the running world to like oh we've got to do our strength training and it's all about strength 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 force 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 and mm -hmm. there's less about the actual um uh timing and body position um uh and and the sensitivity of your environment um and the rhythm um of the movement um because it's i guess harder to measure um yeah uh do you mind um yeah talking about the importance of flow yeah well yeah. i mean so let's talk about rhythm rhythm yeah. is a component of, of so there's flow as a psychological state and then there's the way that we think about movement flow and parkour which is a little bit specific um but rhythm is uh, rhythm is 
fundamental to coordination, right? There's a there's an optimal timing for something. So if you see somebody who is untrained in doing, say, a, a broad jump, what you see is that their arm swing isn't at the right time, right? So why do you swing your arms when you are um, when you're doing a, a, a jump, right? You swing your arms because the arm swinging down yeah. creates more ground reaction force that then pushes you away from the ground. So if your time, if the timing of that arm swing is off, you're not going to perform as well. If you look at something like a dunk or a high jump where you have different kinds of forces to, to work with, your variations in how your arms swing actually help buffer instability in the performance when the foot is on the ground, right? So the so any movement we can look at and think there's actually a rhythm component of it something as simple as a squat right in a squat your knees are actually supposed to come in at a specific time if you watch the best olympic weightlifters in the world on their way up you'll see the knees come in yep right the knees have to come in in order to get the basically compression of the uh, essentially what you're actually looking at is you're basically a big fluid tube, right? And so your your fluids as you go down are going to bump against the bottom of your um, of your uh, of your pelvic floor, and then you have to rebound them out. So you have to close that aperture. So internal rotation of the hip closes the aperture of the of the pelvic floor and bounces your fluid back up, which makes it a lot easier. Okay. Yeah. Now, if that's not timed well you're going to miss that, right? It's not going to work. So there's a, a rotational component of movement into external rotation and internal rotation of the squat. It's the same thing when you're running, right? When you're running, when your foot is hitting the ground, it has to pronate, which is internal rotation at the hip. And then as we finish, we're going to wind out into external rotation. So do you have a sense for that rhythm? Right? Can you feel the timing? And it can be very, very, it's very, very fine-tuned, right? Like a little bit better rhythm is going to increase that efficiency of that stride tremendously. And running, or like breathing, breathing is rhythm, right? So why do we get stitches in our side when we run? Because the breath is not organized in relationship to the compression of the muscles as we land. So what's happening is the diaphragm is, is, is seizing because of poor coordination between the rest of the muscular system and the breathing system. So every, every aspect of movement has this, this aspect of, of rhythm, but we, it, it happens very naturally in play that we'll start attuning to these rhythms. And this is also some where like dance and, and, and music comes in really, really powerful. Um, my, one of my friends, uh, Joseph Frusek, who runs something called fighting monkeys, like everybody should do African tribal dance. Yeah. Right? <laughs> we need that. Yeah. You, you, there, there is just a tremendous, uh, it's a, it's kind of, again, it's one of these things. It's like, mm, have you ever heard of invisible jujitsu? No. <laughs> okay. So, 
uh, Hicks and Gracie is widely considered the greatest jujitero of all time, right? Um, yep. And he specializes not in like footlocks or strangles or that. He specializes in what he calls invisible jujitsu, which is these principles of how you end up getting effectively from one position to another. So it's about, it's like, it's not, no, it's not the mechanics of the armbar. The mechanics of what takes you from mount to armbar, which is like your ability to sustain pressure on the person, your ability to close space, your ability to sustain your structure. Uh, so we have obvious metrics, right? Like how high you can jump, how hard you can push, all these things. But then there's all these things like that are that are much more fine tuned. But if you don't attend to them, you're leaving big gains on the table. Yep. So for runners, the sense of rhythm is huge. And if they want to understand what the Kenyans have that they don't have, yeah. part of it's genetics. Kenyans <laughs> are very lightly built. They're short and, yeah. you know, have small shoulders and long legs. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, I'm never going to move like a Kenyan because... I have proportionally short legs, extremely broad shoulders, right? I have short shins. It's not that's not how I'm going to move. But but they grew up in an environment where they weren't sitting on desks all the time. Right? Yeah, they didn't have video games to play with. <laughs> they ran and played and engaged in fun, and they have that sense of rhythm, that sense of natural movement, a sense of natural movement um, and rhythm gives us so much more potential for ease in the body and for efficiency in how we're applying the force. No, that's, that's fantastic. Um, and, I, and I also I think like that's where the, the coupling of the environment and your, your um, sensory sort of ability to perceive the environment and then uh, couple that with your, your movement, like that's where getting outside and doing sort of more sort of, movement amongst the nature like compared to breaking down well doing whole body movements amongst nature compared to breaking down movements um into certain just sort of non-functional muscle groups in a in a highly sort of non-contextualized gym like i, I feel like that's yeah where you can sort of also yeah. has limitations yeah um rafe thanks so much um for your time um if um, some listeners wanted to find out more about Evolve Move Play and um, and and uh, like where should they go and um, I'll, I'll include um, whatever you want in the show notes. Um, but yeah. yeah. Uh, so www. You know the three Ws plus EvolveMovePlay.com will take you to our home on the internet. Uh, we have three online programs available right now. One's just a week long introductory program, then we have a month long program, and then we have a a six week, um, like real intense, uh, introduction, natural parkour, all that stuff is kind of just getting populated on the website right now. We will, our retreats are now available for next year. Uh, those all probably start selling out very quickly. Uh, we usually, they don't last too long usually. Um, so those are available. Um, I'm also, you know, Rafe Kelly on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, we're going to be a lot more active on our YouTube channel starting in the next couple of weeks. Uh, so yeah, 
I, I definitely. And then if people, folks want to check out the podcast, it's on Apple Podcasts, it's on Spotify, it's on Stitcher and whichever podcast format you like, it's probably there. Um, if it's not, send us a message, we'll yeah. get it on it. Uh, and you can just watch them on YouTube as well. Oh, I thoroughly recommend um, your podcast. Um, Rafe has some amazing guests and um, the chats are always um, so insightful and um, uh, I feel like you do a really good job with picking who you talk to and um, um, it's always like a great conversation to listen to. So thanks so much, Rafe, um, for um, actually agreeing to do this and um, I'm so glad that more people be um, able to listen to this message. Okay. Yeah. Have a good day, Dave. Yeah, you too.